The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Isaiah 8 is a passage in this complex prophet of God who brings a message that both tells about historical things going on as well as prophecies of the future. Just very briefly, a setting of this, Isaiah is speaking to King Ahaz. You pick that up in chapter 7, and in chapter 7, he makes a prophecy about the virgin conceiving and bearing a son whose name shall be Emmanuel. That's not our main focus today, but just noting that it's there. And in chapter 8, we read in the beginning that there's a, an invasion expected. The Assyrians are coming, and they're a very fearful, powerful, we'd call them a superpower, cruel people, and everyone's getting excited. How are we going to defend ourselves both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And uh, people are taking all kinds of worldly strategies to, uh, to defend themselves and, and following worldly wisdom. We break in. I'm going to read a little earlier than the bulletin says at 8.11. I'm going to pick it up and read Isaiah addressing this situation as this superpower invasion is expected. This is the prophet of God speaking. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that his, this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on this. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. So bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth. But behold, they will see distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, 
and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time he has made glorious the wave of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. This people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has a light shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy, and they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Father God, help us to translate from ancient time what is so contemporary for our day, the light you have shined in mankind's thick darkness. Help us to see it here, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Do you realize that even if you will never be any kind of a famous person, even within the precincts of Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, you will merit an appearance in the newspaper at least twice in your life, in a normal scope of an American life. And you can guess what those two times are. In fact, the first time probably doesn't even have your name. It will say something like, Mr. and Mrs. John Jones had a daughter December 12, 2015, at Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Your birth announcement, of course. And most of us will also get another notice in the newspaper, even if you don't compete on a sports team or, you know, win the academic quiz bowl or uh, sell the most real estate or something else that would get your picture in the paper, there'll be a death notice. When you die, your picture will probably be there if the family chooses it, and there'll be some paragraphs outlining events in your life and where you went to school and who your relatives are, and a few highlights to tell us about you. And it was the same for Jesus. The Word of God contains birth notices, actually several of them, Old Testament and New. And of course, it has his death notice, which is so lengthy and so full that it consumes, at the very least, four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We pointed last week to Malachi 5.2, one of the birth notices of Jesus that mentions the very specific small town in which he was born, Bethlehem. Now, here's another prophet of God, Isaiah. And these two men, by the way, Malachi and Isaiah, prophesied roughly. Their lives overlapped. They weren't exact contemporaries, but they did overlap. And both in the southern kingdom of Judah But Isaiah spoke to a wicked king whose name was Ahaz, while um, Micah spoke primarily to Hezekiah, a godly king, later on. 
But what we have in the book of Isaiah is a bit complex at times. It keeps shifting, and sometimes you can lose your way because Isaiah is telling us history of real things that took place, but he's also speaking prophetically. He'll, he'll stop telling you of historic events and suddenly break into saying something that isn't going to happen for a very long time away. And you have to kind of know how to switch back and forth with him a little bit in order to stay with the grand designs of God that he's speaking about. I'm especially leading up to Isaiah 9-6 today. That'll be the climax of what we have to say. And in fact, next Sunday, my hope is to come back to that verse and develop it in an even further way. But as we think about these familiar words, unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. I hope today for you to have some of the background of where this comes from to see what glad news it was when it was first announced and to understand that it is just as much glad news for us today. Well, Isaiah spends quite a bit of time, and my first of only two points today is to talk about the deep darkness in which mankind dwells, particularly as Isaiah makes it known here. Certainly, we've got our own version in 2015 of deep darkness in our society, our politics, our economy, world events. Here we are approaching Christmas, and once again, I can remember many Christmases when this has been true. You know, somehow we have this idyllic notion that if Christmas is coming, world events and and world conflicts should just sort of cease so we can all have a nice mellow month of December. It never works that way, does it? As we approach this Christmas 2015, we've got a tense climate of gloom in international affairs, uncertainty that spills over into our land. We are at war, not in Iraq, not in Afghanistan, not in Vietnam, not on the the, uh, shores of Europe. We're at war against a nation that we can't even identify for geographical territory, a nation that hates us and would destroy us. And so we're at war in places like San Bernardino, of all things. At war, as we remember just a couple Christmases ago, only days before Christmas, at a school in a place called Sandy Hook, not all that far from here. And we see also today race relations in our cities at a new low, people rioting in the streets for equality, crazed gunmen who are ready to stand up and shoot people down who have no relation to them whatsoever, but just for them to express their hatred or their anger or their frustration. We see leadership in Washington and Harrisburg deadlocked and seemingly unable to do the kinds of courageous things and work out the arrangements that we pay legislators and presidents and others to do for us. And we see those who want to be president. And I can't go there very far, as you well know, standing in a pulpit. But I can say what dismay we largely have as we see those who mainly can speak by arrogance and putting others down and say, this is the way I will lead. And we say, oh my goodness, that's not leadership. In Isaiah's day, God's chosen people were divided into the northern kingdom named Israel, then led by an obscure king named Pekah, P-E-K-A-H, not much known about him, he didn't do much. 
And Pekah was already pretty much under the sway of Assyria, the big power to the north. He was in alliance with Assyria. And the southern nation of Judah was ruled, as I said a moment ago, by King Ahaz, who was not a believer, not a man of God. Ahaz had to figure out, what's Assyria going to do to us? And he already had his own national brothers, as it were, the Israelites just to the north who were not on the same side as he was. And he was worried. He was fearful. Even though Jerusalem was a basically fortified city, difficult to overcome militarily, he knew that Assyria was a big, big power with big guns who could wear him down and defeat him. So Ahaz, instead of pursuing a godly strategy, thought, I'll pursue a worldly strategy. I'll see if I can get a treaty with Assyria. Well, that was kind of like, you know, calling up a crocodile and saying, I've got a hen house that needs to be guarded. Uh, Assyria was not a nation that honored treaties with anyone. Now, earlier in chapter 7, and I want to dip back and then come forward in the history, in chapter 7, verse 10, Isaiah came to this ungodly king Ahaz and said, Ahaz, God wants you to ask him for a sign. He, he asks you to choose some sign, something that God could do for you that would convince you he fights on your behalf and he's the defender of his people in Judah. Please ask for anything. And, and if you go back there and read about 710 or so, I believe it's in 711, that says, ask the sign whether it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Anything you want. And God will perform it in order to show you and prove the kind of God he is. Well, Ahaz wouldn't even take that up. He wouldn't even ask for a sign because he had already decided how he was going to lead the nation and he was going to do it my way. Frank Sinatra's 100th birthday the other day. Uh, Ahaz could have sung it, I did it my way. You know, that's how he was going to do it, not God's way. Well, along the way then, the Lord said, all right, you won't look for a sign from God. He'll give you a sign, Isaiah seven fourteen, and it will be one that we find out didn't come to fulfillment for a long, long time. The virgin will conceive and bear a son who will be called Emmanuel. That people have looked for, well, did that apply to something in Isaiah's day, to some child born then? If it did, we can't tell you who it is, that's for sure. But we know what Matthew tells us, of course. Matthew 1, and on Christmas Eve, I hope to deal with, with that fulfillment of Isaiah seven fourteen in Matthew 1, that this, of course, was Jesus Christ. And Matthew says, didn't the prophet say this would happen? But the people didn't want to hear divine revelation. And so we jump over into the end of chapter 8 here, and the prophet is saying, well, won't you people fear the Lord, listen to the Lord instead of just following your own ideas? Why are you listening to what Isaiah calls medians, mediums and necromancers, two interesting words there in, in uh, 819? And I love it, the, the speech used here, mediums and necromancers who chirp and mutter you don't think the prophet is being sarcastic? He's making fun of these supposedly spiritual people who can tell the future, who don't know anything and can't say anything meaningful. They speak uh, from the dead. They call up spirits of the dead. And Isaiah is saying, why do you go to them? 
You have the Word of God in scrolls. And they did have that. And therefore, Isaiah says in 8.20, here's where you should go. Go to the teaching. That's the teaching of God and the testimony of God. Listen to that. And the Lord will guide you. The Lord will speak to you. You don't need these foolish people who chirp and mutter. I found myself asking if we have equivalents of necromancers and mediums. Of course we do have. I mean, there's places in Lancaster County where you can get your palm read. I don't see long lines of cars at those places. In fact, I've never yet gone by one when I saw a customer car parked outside. I'm not quite sure how they keep the business going. But uh, anyway, we have something else. We have the great information age. We have to just sit down at a computer and we can ask it any question. What do I do about this? Or what's the history of this? Or tell me something about this. And you can do an internet search and get all kinds of information just spilling out at you. And particularly, both the computer and your media, your TV, your radio, everything else, your, your uh, iPhone, or you might unload the news or whatever. What's the great medium today of telling people what they should do or how they should think? Why, it's the ever-present opinion poll, right? Every news broadcast contains all kinds of polls. 47% of Republicans think this. 87% of Democrats think this. Uh, Here's what now the American public says by, you know, 72% to 28% or something. And we get this all the time. And I turned to my wife when we're watching the news. I I did this week anyway after I'd been studying Isaiah. And I said, there's more chirping and muttering, more polls to tell us, oh, wow, the American public have voted by 51% that we can now change morality. We can turn everything around, all the historic wisdom of the ages. And guess what? They're going to chirp and mutter something different next week a constantly moving source that's supposed to be of wisdom or or morality or truth is only a lot of different shades of darkness. And you look at how chapter 8 of Isaiah ends here as I draw this opening point to a close. It says that people are only going deeper into more and more darkness You look at uh, what it says there in verse 21. They pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and they will be enraged and speak contemptuously against their king and their God. Aren't people constantly shaking their fists today in print articles or conversations with friends and saying, why doesn't God fix this? Where was God in San Bernardino? Of course, never mind that uh, we want the free will for human beings to go and pull the trigger in any direction they want to, but we'll blame God for allowing people to exercise their free will, which can be entirely evil at times. And they, they contemptuously treat their God and their leaders. And then it says in verse 22 at the end of that chapter, sort of summarizing everything that's here, they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Well, that's pretty hopeless sounding. Human beings trying to find their way, and if they're just trusting a king or they're trusting the, the uh, soothsayers or the necromancers or the mediums, all they get is more darkness. 
they need light. And this passage has already reminded us that the light comes from the Word of God, but we won't have it. We won't look at it. We won't listen to it. So now I have built up by summarizing chapter 8 there to come to the great reversal of things that Isaiah 9 announces for you. And I'm gliding over big things here today, but what is the first word of chapter 9? There will be no more gloom. No more gloom in a particular place, a particular territory. And maybe your reference marks don't identify what territories the prophet is talking about until he reaches the end of verse 1. Zebulun and Naphtali aren't in most people's everyday vocabulary, but those are are sub-territories within the northern area of Palestine, within the boundaries of what we call Galilee. That territory up there, I need to ask you to try to picture the the map of of this area. You can probably picture the Mediterranean Sea and, and know that the Holy Land comes sort of down beside it. If you disembarked from a warship at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea, you'd find before you a broad plain that goes well inland, and then the plain turns downward towards Jerusalem. Invading armies came in that way century after century. The Phoenicians, all kinds of people, came and invaded the land of God's people from the north, from the sea, across the plain of Megiddo, and down south towards Jerusalem. And everybody knew that. Zebulun and Naphtali were in that area. Galilee of the nations, it's called that because the people there were primarily Gentiles. And so, of course, a little despised in the eyes of Israel and and, uh, Judah. But look what happened to these people who had only darkness and gloom. A big turnaround. It's it's spoken about here as if it's already happened, even though the prophet is speaking of it, and it will only come centuries later. They have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. In second place today, I tell you this, that you try to hear this familiar announcement that's going to come in verse 6, that God brought a great light into human darkness. And he wants to bring that light into the darkness and gloom of society today. He can and he will. I don't know what you see on your computer email as advertisements that you don't want. I see dozens of things, 50 or more emails a day, probably six of them I'm actually interested in. So delete, 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 delete. Do you do that like me if you get email? Their particular product has been thrust at me that some company's getting through the filters, and uh, they sell a, uh, I'll call it a policeman's flashlight. And it's a, it's a, a flashlight that's a, a big, sturdy job, maybe a foot long or so, kind of a big tube to it, and it, it supposedly projects a high-intensity light for 100 yards. It's like a car headlight beam. And they've they've almost got me convinced that I need one of these things. Because they've said, you know, if for a policeman, for a military or law enforcement person, it's not only a great light that shines all over the place, it's also a weapon. You know, if you have to subdue somebody attacking you, you whack them with this thing because it's got a magnesium case and it's guaranteed not to break. Boy, I can think of all kinds of uses for that. 
but not on, not using it against any of you, of course. But uh, but what a what a brilliant beam I could shine into the darkness. Well, that's what God has done. He has shined a great light and. Keep in mind the meaning of light. It's one of those very important words in the Bible. It symbolizes a lot of things. You go all the way back to the first page of Genesis. And God looked on his creation and on the primeval beginnings, and he said, let there be light. And there was light. You know, in our activity room at the other end of the building, there are two different sets of lights there. There are there are the uh, room lights that they're okay. You turn them on and you got decent light. But then there are these big overhead, I, I don't know if I'll describe them accurately, but they're, they're much brighter lights and you have to hit four separate switches and bam, 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 you hit those and oh, the room is flooded with light. Imagine God turning the switches that brought the stars and the planets into being. A few of you said you took my homework assignment last week and looked up the Hubble telescope pictures and said, wow, stars and constellations and amazing things. God turned on the lights. That's the kind of creator he was. And when we come to think of Christ, there's an amazing verse that has always grabbed me. I can't read this verse or say it without feeling a strong pull of attraction to it. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, when he said, the same God who first caused light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Christ. What a connection to make. Paul is connecting the light of Christ to the original lamps of creation. And he's saying, God comes to illumine our lives, to to let us see things that we couldn't see so that we understand our past and our shameful deeds, our need to repent, so that we understand our present and we have wisdom of how to act and, and what is moral and what is true and what is good to do towards others. And he lights our future so that we understand our eventual destination and our heavenly home. So here's Isaiah 9.1 saying that God is bringing this light, which we realize by verse 6 will be Christ, and he's bringing this light to come to first appear. And of course, Jesus grew up in Galilee in a town called Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem, but Bethlehem's not in Galilee, but Nazareth is. He grew up there, and the light began to shine you see how parallel this is to Micah? Micah told us his birthplace was Bethlehem. This is saying the light will begin to shine in Galilee of the nations. Why is that so significant? Well, you maybe have never noticed before or thought about the fact that it's kind of behind the scenes here that Galilee's the place where all the armies have always marched in to conquer God's people. The trampling of warriors boots are spoken about in verse 5. Garments rolled in blood are spoken about. What God is saying is he's bringing his light in the very region of the world here known to these folks where the worst battles and the worst fears have come from oppressors and slave takers and marauders who came into the land for God's people. I have a book at home 
that if my grandsons ever acquire a great interest in the Civil War, I'd probably show them this book, but I wouldn't show it to a young child. It's a really ghoulish book. Someone gave it to me as a gift. I'm not sure if I would have bought it myself. It's a book of photographic studies from Matthew Brady and other photographers of the aftermath of the battlefield of Gettysburg. In other words, pictures taken within the first days and weeks after the Battle of Gettysburg. It is a horrible book. Corpses piled up, bloated in the suns with horrible expressions on their faces, weapons strewn all over the ground, broken wagons, dead horses, the chaos and ruin of war. But, you know, I I think of that book when I think of this passage because what the prophet is saying is the very place that has been the battlefield, that has been the entryway for armies, where the warrior's boot has tramped, where the garments lay from dead bodies rolled in blood, that's the place where God's light is going to come. It's a wonderful thing that's being said here. God is coming into the world's conflict zone, battlefield, and he's bringing his light of truth and hope. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. You know, we would have said, well, God, don't send a baby. What can a baby do against armies? Yes, young people, I'm aware that there's a new Star Wars movie coming out. Are you all aware of this? You don't have to be a teenager. I have sons who are way beyond teenagers who are really interested. They already have their tickets for Friday night. I guess it's Friday night. I don't have my ticket. God didn't say I'm going to send angels in starships blazing away to do away with all those bad guys who come to threaten you, those Assyrians. He didn't even say, I'm going to find somewhere hidden in America a modern-day Abraham Lincoln who can step forward and be elected and or nominated and elected and be your president and solve all your problems because he'll be a great president. Wouldn't we like that if that person could somehow vault on the stage? God didn't say that. He didn't say, I'll send a politician or I'll send an army. He sent a baby. What was he saying? A baby to come on the former battlefield, soaked in blood, strewn with mankind's struggles and weapons, where terrorists fight. And in fact, a terrorist is even going to chase after Jesus. His name was, was Herod. He said, I'll send a baby to show that my weakness is infinitely stronger than humanity's strength. Rejoice, Emmanuel, God with us is coming to illumine our thick darkness. This is what God sets out to do, and he did it, of course. My invitation today is to the person who might somehow actually enjoy being in the darkness. You know, John 3 says people love darkness rather than light. If they have evil deeds, they want to hide. And many people do. They don't want to be exposed. One of the most painful jobs a pastor does in a counseling room is try to let people open the doors and windows of their life and see what they're hiding in the dark and face it and repent of it. My invitation to you today is to step into the light of Jesus Christ, the light of truth that, yes, does expose us, does hurt. That exposure can hurt. 
If you come to God and for the first time tell him the truth about yourself, he already knows it anyway, but he wants to hear it from you. The world is a dark and threatening place in 2015, just as it was way back here a very long time ago. The world is a battlefield. Our cities are battlefields. We're scared about this. We're worried about this. But we're just living the condition of mankind into which Christ was sent. And so I tell you, here's Jesus' birth announcement. He came to turn on the light of truth, the light of salvation, the light of hope. It's heaven's porch light that he turned on to give you a beacon to find your way home to God. Thanks be to him. Our Father, we thank you for the light of Christ. It was a dark place there in Isaiah's day. It's a dark place today. Forgive us for times when we might have actually sought the shadows to hide from you or think that we were hiding from you. Father, let us endure the exposure of the wrongs and the sin and the evils in our lives, that we might come into the healing and the warmth and the guidance and the safety of the light of Jesus. For his sake and for your glory, we pray this. Amen.